Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am joined again by Nick Tuminello. Um, so you guys hopefully have already seen Nick on the podcast or rather heard Nick on the podcast as he had a fantastic discussion with Mike Isretel talking about things like range of motion um, and that sort of thing. So that was a great episode and I know the listeners really enjoyed it. So I have no doubt you're going to enjoy this episode with Nick. I think Nick has a great eye for kind of Um, being very critical about kind of a lot of kind of misconceptions within personal training and things like this very much the kind of personal trainer for personal trainers Um, I see Nick as being great at that so uh, first of all how are you doing Nick you well yeah man I appreciate again I appreciate the opportunity that uh, you gave both Mike and I to you know have some fun and have some back and forth and I I really thought that was an awesome discussion I have great respect for what he does and um and then again, I appreciate you having me on and we'll, we'll hopefully put on another good show for the listeners. Absolutely. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll be speaking a little bit more this time. <laughs> Last time um, I kind of just was observing like everyone else, but that was fun regardless. <laughs> well, hey, listen, you know, Mike Mike, and I both like to run our mouths. So we get that's why we got jobs running. Get paid <laughs> so you get two of us together. It's tough. Makes my job easy anyway. So awesome. Um, so the, the article or rather... The, the topic that we're going to talk about today, because I'm sure we'll expand upon the article that you wrote, uh, which I'll make sure is linked below, but that's for T Nation. Uh, and this is called kind of falsely accused exercises. So I think a lot of us probably when we hear that kind of, or rather exercises that we are told or think to avoid, a few spring to mind. Um, and there was four kind of major ones that you brought up in this article. And I, I'd love to dissect each because I think the listeners will really appreciate that. So the first one was ab crunches. So um, obviously some of the arguments are kind of poor for posture and that people kind of cherry pick as they usually do. But you had a really great way of kind of dissecting this. Yeah, I mean, so do you want me just to kind of jump right in to some of the points that I made in the article and then also, you know, maybe expand upon that? Absolutely, go for it. All right. So let me just give an overarching thing right off the bat, because I understand how often people can misconstrue, misinterpret, you know, selective hearing sometimes can get the best of all of us. So anything I say from here forward about a given exercise from the article or anything point we make does not is does not mean the inverse is true, does not mean I'm endorsing the exercise for everyone or that I'm somehow personally attached emotionally attached to a certain exercise and therefore I'm trying to promote it that everybody should do it. What I'm trying to promote is more of a nuanced critical thinking approach and evaluating individual um, level based on principle, individuality, specificity, and using evidence and principles to come to conclusions and make your programming decisions based on that. I am promoting against making it based off of overly simplistic black and white type thinking. You know, sometimes simplistic thinking is good for writing a general crowd for a magazine, you know, or something like that. But we, the, this audience, you know, trainers who are making decisions, we are beyond that, that we're not, we're not talking about the white belt course right now, right? Um, you, there's different techniques you teach a beginner boxer than an advanced boxer. So again, there's, there's different things. So with, now with that being said, so nobody misinterprets anything. Um, we've been hearing crunches, you know, are a bad exercise essentially. Um, and then the reasons behind the reason how people feel the, the reason why it's bad run everything from, 
It's bad for your posture, meaning if you do lots of crunches, you're going to end up in that posture to um, a performance-based argument, which is uh, your abs don't really do that when you're standing. They don't really flex your trunk because gravity gives you trunk flexion for free. It's your low back extensors that decelerate trunk flexion, so they are not, therefore not functional. When they say functional, they just mean transfer. They, they, you know, what the exercise that you're doing on the floor doesn't have a transfer to help you in real life and and sports. And then, of course, we have the arguments based on um, what people think Stuart McGill's work is saying in regards to, oh, it's basically, you know, your body has only so many flexion, you know, cycles, and therefore it's detrimental to keep doing it. It's a high-risk exercise, low reward. Um, so let me just – some of those – these arguments I, I looked at at the article, other ones I've, I've discussed in other articles – so um, to the Stuart McGill argument first, um, Stuart McGill recently did a position paper for the NSA Personal Trainer Quarterly Journal. He co-authored the uh, article with Brad Schoenfeld. Um, I don't remember the title of the article, but it's those two did it. It's very recent. Uh, at the time we're doing this interview, we're doing it in the beginning of 2019. The article came out, if I remember correctly, in 2018 or the end of 2017. So it's very recent. Stuart McGill was the lead author, and in that article, don't believe me, go read it yourself. Um, in that article, they basically discuss that if you're looking for more flexibility, and what they just mean is strength through movement, then you would want to consider movements like crunches and sit-ups. If you're looking for more of that stationary, what some strength coaches have called pillar strength, or just you know being able to resist movement, then you want to look more at isometric-based exercises. People call planks and anti-flexion and anti-rotation stability exercises. They're just isometrics. Nobody does an isometric bicep curl and calls it elbow stability, right? It's just somehow we create more sexy terms when it comes to the spine, but that's a separate rant I can have. Um, so in that article, so if, if Stuart McGill really believed that Movements like crunches and sit-ups had no real benefit, or at least the benefit they offered didn't outweigh the risks of it, or there were risks outweighed the benefits. He wouldn't recommend them at all for people looking for flexibility, as they said in that in that article. So, and I know I'm not going to put words in Stuart McGill's mouth. Again, you can read the article, but I, I have heard that Stuart McGill has uh, actually inserted a whole area in his workshops called things that Stuart McGill says, where he basically says like, you know, this is things that people say I say I've said, but this is not really what I said. Right. So I'm not going to say exactly that crunches are in there. I would guess they are, but I've not been to the course, so I can't put words in, in his mouth. So again, um, there's a difference between what I would say being simple and simple mindedness. Being simple is a direct quote. Simple like use the principle of individuality. That's simple. Simple mindedness is dogma. Crunches are, you know, are bad for your back. There, that's that's simple mindedness. It's or it's misinterpreting um, research. So uh, so I don't. I know I, have, I want to address some other points, but I don't know if you have anything to add to that no. based on what you heard. Uh, to be quite honest, I just thought it was brilliantly put, especially the initial disclaimer, um, really, really valuable information. I know 
Uh, Brad Schoenfeld's very much the same. When he ever talks about exercises, he's very clear about how he's saying one isn't better than another. There's just kind of, he likes exercises for certain reasons. So I thought that was really well put. And then, um, yeah, the article uh, that Stuart put out and I'm sure almost every single kind of someone who's very well known within the industry could have what he has there in terms of people think I've said this, but actually this is not what I'm saying. Um, it seems to be a common thing within kind of the fitness industry. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, so the other one is the, you know, well, it's not very functional. Again, it doesn't transfer and, and forever. I mean, I came up in the late nineties, early two thousands as a, as a trainer and I came up in what, you know, we would call the functional training boom, right? Where if you were standing on wobbly stuff and you were doing 3d exercises, you were supposed to be the smartest trainer in the room, right? So it was an overreaction to, to, it was an overreaction to, everybody just doing bodybuilding and, and cardio, right? So there's a good elements to looking at principal specificity and moving in 3D and getting you standing more and doing integrated movements, but it was a little overreaction. Now, so one of the examples that so-called experts would use to demonstrate, prove to you that um, your abdominals, you know, abdominal flexion exercises don't transfer to standing movements like you would do in field court combat sports, is they would have everybody in the room stand up and they'd have them press into their abdominal area, right, their belly area, and they would say, okay, go ahead and bend over. And everybody would bend over and they'd say, oh, do you feel your abdominal muscles turn on? And everybody would go, no, and they go, oh, see, all that flexion exercise you're doing for sports is a waste of time. Well, there's one problem with that. That's, that's kind of a, a false reading, essentially, because when you're playing sports – field court combat sports, you have to move faster than gravity will take you there if you're lowering your center of gravity, if you have to bend over to slip a punch or change your level. So if you move fast and bend down even a little bit, bang, your abdominal muscles do absolutely go on because they have to pull you there faster than gravity will take you there. So that's that that uh, example doesn't really hold weight if you're going to talk about transfer. Well, we got to match speed. And you can do that yourself. Try it. Move fast, press in your belly, and you'll feel, boom, those muscles pop on. Now, the other one is, I've heard this a lot, well, you know, it, it changes your rib angle and it changes your posture, meaning like, you know, any movement so that the, the thought process there is that any movement that you do a lot of or get stronger in will therefore pull you into that posture. But nobody, we all know this is false. Because now I'm not saying the body can't adapt to things, right? But just one exercise, if you're going to apply it to one exercise, you have to apply that to every other exercise. So you would just say, well, if I just do a bunch of deadlifts and extension exercises, I'll offset that, right? Number one. But here's the other thing we got to consider. Nobody thinks that doing RDLs and kettlebell swings and posterior chain exercises will make you stand like you're a C, right? We'll, we'll lock you in extension like this where you can't bend forward. Nobody ever thinks that if you do a bunch of shoulder front raises that your arm will lock out, you know, up in, 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 um, in flexion that, and you can't put it down. It's like a, a, a diving board at the pool, right? <laughs> I can't bring this arm down, right? All that front delt strength I've got. That's just not how the body works. So that's not very consistent logic mm -hmm. um, being applied to those. Now, I, I can go on and on and, and pick apart any little article. Another one is about repetitiveness. Oh, well, you have to do a lot of them. That one I would agree with. I would say that any exercise you can do, uh, a beginner can do probably 40 or 50 of 
you know, day one is probably just too dang easy from an overload perspective. Um, and then when you hear about these people doing 200 of this and these old, you know, Hollywood celebrities, you hear about their articles, their articles reading, they do 2000 crunches a day, whatever. A lot of times it was like the female pop stars. They were always big on crunches. Well, I agree with that, that that's a not a good thing to do, but that's just a misuse of extra of principle of overload. That's not the exercise's fault. Right. No, brilliantly put again, I think it's when you think about every exercise, there's certain ways to apply them sensibly and quite often the arguments that are made are when they're not done in a sensible context. But if you can make them within a sensible context, which I don't think is too difficult for an ab crunch, then they can definitely be a great exercise. And I know you're particularly a fan of a certain exercise. If you want a, the stability ball crunch, um, I think that would be really cool to kind of put over to the listeners. Yeah. So now in, in going back to simple versus simple mindedness, if I had to give you some simple advice, if you feel that, um, you know, flexion is not a problem, is not a painful movement to somebody. Obviously, if it's a what physical therapists would call provocative movement, meaning you move a certain way and it creates pain. Well, you don't necessarily want to do that movement or at least you want to get with a, a rehabilitation specialist who you know, who can gradually train you in a way that they can build that back in, in a way that's not going to cause protective mechanisms and have any, you know, any issues down the road, but that's not my, my field. So, um, that aside, if, if, if it's not contraindicated for somebody, then, um, the two go-to movements that I have are, would be stability ball crunches where you lay over the ball and you get a stretch over your abdominals and you, I like holding a weight plate to create some overload. Um, or reverse crunches over a stability ball where you're hanging on a, an anchor. That's a very advanced exercise. The reason why I like both of those, and when I say I like, I don't necessarily mean my personal preferences. I just mean in order to apply the principle of specificity, you know, the range of motion that's involved. Um, those are my two go-to flexion movements. Now, here's why. Because they move you through a large range of motion and because they start you in a, an abdominal stretch. Now, interestingly, one of the things we know from um, research on loading muscles under load is that static stretching and other forms of stretching don't seem to actually change the, the physiological length of a muscle. No, you can't change origin and insertion without surgery. But you can add sarcomeres within – lay down more sarcomeres within the muscle too. I, I'm sure some physiologists would come up with a better term than I'm going to come up right now, but you can you can almost change the the strength curve of it, where you can build strength in a larger range of motion, where maybe parts of the range you'd be weaker. So the best way I can describe that right now, I'm sure someone will probably ding me on that one. But um, so you can, that's what I mean by adding length, and the way to do that has been shown is to load muscles under length. Well. Interestingly, what do most people say, going back to their arguments, say that they shouldn't do crunches? Oh, because it'll cause your abdominal muscles to shorten. Well, not if you're actually, if you're loading them in length, if you're worried about someone having a shorter abdominal muscle that pulled forward, then maybe actually doing things like overload eccentrics over the ball might actually be what the doctor ordered based on what, again, what evidence says and what the principle of specificity says, not what dogma, what dogma sounds good. Mm -hmm. And do you find, I know, well, from a personal perspective, I, for specificity in terms of bodybuilding my sport, I need thicker abdominals. So I've been experimenting lots of ab flexion. And do you have any kind of 
not hack, well, hacks might be a term for it, but getting rid of the hip flexors coming in because that sometimes for me becomes an issue where I'm just like, ah, my hip flexors are getting tired, but the abdominals aren't. Um, is there any exercises you find are particularly good for removing the hip flexors? Well, I'm sure they can, they're probably going to activate to some level. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would so experiment with, um, I mean, it's really hard if you're getting lumbar flexion, you know, um, and you're trying to minimize the hip flexion involvement, then I would just say focus more on moving through lumbar flexion when you're doing lumbar flexion exercises. So, you know, um, if you're doing like a reverse crunch, uh, whether it be over a ball or on a bench, you know, pull your knees all the way up to like a cannonball position and then focus on rolling your lumbar spine into flexion and not at that point you've kind of you, you you're not allowing your hip flexors to really do much you're kind of disadvantaging disadvantaging them um same thing with the stability ball crunch you know if you don't roll and you don't roll your butt down and can create more hip flexion and you focus more on on that kind of thoracic and lumbar flexion and you can even kind of do a encourage like a posterior tilt at your pelvis those are a few a few details. Now, uh, one more point I want to make, going back to kind of a sports performance, life transfer, functional, you know, uh, choose your term there argument, is that principle of specificity that we, we know is basically you get what you train for, or basically the demands that you put on your body in the gym or the exercises, wherever you train, at home, outside, whatever. The, the, the uh, benefits you get or the adaptions you get are going to be specific to whatever you, you put your body through, principle of specificity. So we know from research on isometrics that you, if you do isometrics, you get stronger in the range that you do the isometrics in. And the further away that joint gets from the range that you train in isometrics, guess what? You don't get as strong. Well, if you only do anti-movement stuff from that what some people would call neutral position – Again, the principle of specificity and research says that you're going to get stronger in those ranges, but any, as we get you pulled out of those ranges, when you flex and twist and bend, you're not going to have as much strength transfer from that. Going back to what Stuart McGill was talking about, if you want to have flexibility, he was really talking about strength in movement. Mm -hmm. So to me, if I'm going to give a simplistic um, programming tip, I would say as long as you can do both – anti-movement and movement under load and load it progressively. Start where people are at and build up. Don't overload them. Just like you wouldn't smack 300 pounds on a beginner's back or 150 kilo. Um, then that to me is the smartest approach. Who says you can't do both? Unless you do an individualized assessment and you got a physical therapist or physio says, look, this person's back, you know, um, hurts when they do flexion. I've actually had people that don't hurt when they do flexion, but they hurt when they do things like anti-rotation. Okay. So it's not always one versus the other. And if trainers been training clients for a while, I'm sure they've seen that as well. Yeah. I've even seen that within online coaching. So, well, it's obviously it's just training people and you can have uh, re responses from them. So, um, fantastically covered. We could go on to the second exercise, which was Smith machine squats. Um, these are something I have been using as bread and butter at the moment for my quad development. So I'm going to really enjoy hearing you kind of dispel this myth in a sense. Well, I, I really think what you, you just did it. Um, again, this is one of these kind of, um, false, uh, it's the best way I can put it. It's, um, there's a, there's a name for it, a logical fallacy, but I can't think of it right now. Is it like a but naturalistic? 
Well, not naturalistic. Uh, that's not what I'm going for. So let, let's say right right now behind the computer, I got some bananas over here, right? So I'm going to use this as an example. If I, um, we know that bananas are good, are provide a lot of potassium, right? But I don't think they provide much protein, as far as I know. So, so if I go, bananas are no good because they don't, they're not, they don't provide much protein. You would go, yeah, but that's not why you eat bananas, right? So you're arguing something that that's not why you would do that, but there's other reasons why you would eat bananas. So what I mean, my girlfriend is army crawling by here to say off the camera by the by the uh, she's cracking me. Up. <laughs> um, so it's all right, baby. You can, <laughs> um, we're not filming a Hollywood production over here. Um. So same thing with the Smith squats, going back to what you said, people, the, the trainer types, especially the, the, you know, just do free weights, get strong, get under the bar, bro type people. Well, it doesn't help your squat. Okay. Well, yeah, but maybe I'm not doing it to get better at doing barbell squats or goblet squats. But if I'm really trying to hit more quads, it's a really great option because it allows me to get my my feet further out from my hips than I would be with a free weight because if I try that with a free weight, I just fall backwards. Mm -hmm. And because it creates a longer lever arm or moment arm um, at the knee joint, it makes the quads work harder. And it's actually a two-leg version of what you would do with you an upright torso split squat. If you look at the, the, the shin um, femur torso angle rel relationship, they're very similar. So if you don't, if, if you you can't think much of if you don't think much of Smith machine squats with your heels out from underneath your hips, you can't think much of, of split squats because it's kind of the same relationship. One is just a single leg. Mm -hmm. I guess people are drawing a bit of a straw man kind of saying it's no good for this, so it's no good for anything. Whereas that's not the argument you're trying to make, or you can apply it to different things and it can be useful. Yeah, for um, straw man would probably be the appropriate one. I thought there was another one, um, almost like a. I was going to think like maybe begging the question or something, but I think you. I think you hit it on the nail on the head. Straw man is probably a better way to um, to describe it. Just a quick side note on just while we're talking about this. I know you mm -hmm. have a, an audience that likes critical thinking. Two two terms in regards to that. I was at a skeptic in science conference years ago in Las Vegas. It happened to be at the same time I was teaching the NSCA conference in Vegas. This is like six years ago. Um, so I did the NSCA conference and I went and stayed at the hotel at the, um, where the skeptics and science conference was. And I learned some new terms. One was a red straw herring man. <laughs> so oh, it's gosh. a red <laughs> and straw man collapse, you know, brought in together. And the, the point was a lot of times they're, they're used together. You know, some people create a straw man and then they throw in a red herring. So I like that one. Um, and then the other one I like is uh, is the opposite of straw man, which is called a steel man. I didn't make any of these up. I don't get any credit for this. And I would say that if you're ever going to get into a discussion with somebody, a debate, um, one of the things that you know I'd recommend trying to do is try to steel man their their arguments. And what that means is really two things: is that one, you make sure that you know what they're saying. You know, are you saying that A is connected to B, but you know, something else, is that correct? And if they say yes, then they can't say, no, that's not what I'm saying. You misinterpreted me. And then, so you make sure you understand it and make sure they verify that you're understanding. And two, if you feel there's actually a way that you can bolster their argument, even if you disagree with it, but you think there's a better rationale, you plug that in and then you take it apart. You, like you, you deal with the best version of the argument not the worst version of the argument. 
And one of the reasons why I don't get involved with a lot of Facebook arguments and whatnot is normally I'm hearing the worst version of the argument. Normally people don't have as much exposure to all the conversations that have been had and the points that they bring up sound reasonable, but they don't realize that's been debunked and dealt with so many times over mm-hmm. that they're just, they're not a very good representative of the, they're, they're providing one of the, the worst versions of the argument. Definitely. And I think, no, really interesting. And I think actually quite oftentimes you might find when you do try and build a still man from their perspective, they end up removing or detracting their statement because they're like, oh, actually, I don't think I do think this anymore. Yeah. And some of the worst versions of the argument are some of those arguments we heard about uh, flexion exercises. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, no, you're, they, people have been saying those for a long time and there's good counter arguments. Yeah. Fantastic. So the next exercise related somewhat to Smith machine squats are leg extensions or knee extensions, um, depending how pedantic people want to be. So I think a lot of people still think that these are bad for the knees. Um, And I know you co-authored an article for the NSCA. So I'd love to hear kind of what your findings were on that. Yeah, well, I co-authored, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I co-authored an article with Andrew Vygotsky, uh, where we covered the leg extension a good bit and most of the information uh, that we had in that article. We looked at leg extension, adduction, whatnot, but Andrew Vygotsky gets the gets the majority of the credit for the leg extension component, at least the really hard science stuff. Uh, not kind of hard, hard science, but the more complex aspects um, that we discussed in the article. So I invite everybody to check that article out. And I remember it was called something like, I can't remember that I've read so many dang articles, but um, we can, I'll look it up here in a second. I'll tell you what the title is because I invite everybody to check it out. But let me go back and, and look here because I want to make sure that I don't misrepresent anything that Andrew had said or myself had said. Um, here's I just want to summarize things because I don't want to get you know too much into this. I invite people to read the article because this one is more, is more nuanced. But um, – we basically hear that, oh, it's bad for your knees, it's risky, you know, again, it's non-functional, you know, oh, it's only functional if you're going to compete in a seated ass-kicking contest. I remember hearing that years ago and like, ah, really funny joke. But there's plenty of exercises that we do that don't necessarily look like, you know, the, the movement that we're training for. And that's really the assumption that's based on, you know, any movement that you're, that you're training for, uh, any movement that doesn't look like what you're training for has no carryover to it. Um, but that has actually been debunked in research, such as research looking at um, lying hamstring curls. There was a group of, I think it was rugby players, soccer players, I think. And the entire team, it was like 30 players, the entire team did the same workout, except half the team also got an additional intervention of like three sets of 10 of lying leg curl after every workout. So that was the only difference. And they measured sprint times in the beginning, and then they followed at the end and looked at injury rates. And they found that after the length of the study, the um, keep in mind the only thing that was different in the training uh, in the in the training, everybody did the same thing was just the addition of the lying hamstring curl a few sets. Um, the group that did the lying hamstring curl across the board increased their sprint times from before the study, and at the end of the season they had significantly less hamstring related injuries. So that is a lying single joint you know isolation. I said that in quotation marks type movement. Um, and yet it it still has a very high transfer to improvements in performance and injury risk reduction. So the assumption, one of the assumptions made is the same thing with leg extensions, right? Oh, it's single joint, it's seated, therefore it's not going to carry over. 
Other evidence does not lead to that conclusion. Now, specifically in regards to knee forces, this is really where Andrew shines brightly. Um, what he talks about is that the tensile forces on the ACL are certainly within range and they're no worse than other exercises that are, that are done such as other squats and, and whatnot. Um, so, uh, like for example, knee extensions do not appear to any more, to be any more unsafe for the ACL than what's required for everyday activity. Um, and he talks about a few other things in regards to size of the PCL versus ACL and there's some you know, inconsistent uh, logic there. I don't want to get too much into that because I don't want to misrepresent it. It's pretty technical. Um, if people want to read the T Nation article, which has all the references, um, which we're, we're talking about it right now, I invite them to read it. Um, it's specifically called, just fast, going up to the, the top here, Not Dangerous for Falsely Accused Exercises. And then the subtitle is Trainers Think They're Bad, They're Wrong. Um, so I, to, to get further on the leg extension, I invite everybody to check, to just go read the article and then, uh, let's move on to the next, um, let, I'll just close with this it is again, is, um, there is some research out there that shows like, oh, well the quad activates more and you get less hamstring co-contraction when you do leg extensions. But the assumption there is, well, that's bad, but who says that's bad? You know, I mean, that's just how your those muscles react in that movement, right? So, um, if I can go a little slightly in a related topic, for example, there's lots of research showing that different scapula positions, like an elevated scapula position or whatnot, that that shows um, what's the word they use in research? Altered kinematics. Basically, they're saying like altered muscle firing patterns different muscle firing patterns from when people have a different scapula position. The, and there's several research studies to show that. The assumption that people make, though, is that that means bad, right? So if it meant bad, then research conclusively would show people with a kyphotic-type posture or those types of scapula positions would have more shoulder injuries and more shoulder pain and, and neck pain. But systematic reviews, one recently, do not show that. So again, that that's one way to look at research and go, well, that means this is this no co-contraction of the hamstring means bad. No, just means different. Mm -hmm. But different movements create different muscle activity patterns. So again, there's a lot of assumptions people put on this on um, research, and then those assumptions sound reasonable. But that's a, that's the cool story, bro. Thing, yeah. right? Just because it sounds reasonable doesn't mean it is. And that's my problem when people say, well, it's common sense. Yeah. You know, common sense to a power lifter and common sense to a corrective exercise person are two different forms of common sense. So common sense is very subjective. Whether I think you have common sense or you think I have common sense depends on whether you agree with me or not is pretty much what I've what I've found. Yeah. No, you see that with kind of nutrition all the time with the kind of common sense arguments. And then when you further delve into things, it's just it isn't even if it sounds like it makes sense, it isn't always meaning that that is what it is. Um, I don't know if there's, just out of interest, Nick, I don't know if this is something you would agree with, or and I'm not sure I completely agree with it, saying it off the top of my head, but if you're just going in the gym, you're just trying out exercises, for example, the leg extension, and you perform it, and you get no pain, and you get the good quad pump, and you get the good feel for it, is that like a good kind of, self-study uh, for exercises and whether or not you should be performing them 
Um, I'll let me answer your question there in a second. I just looked up. Well, if you go on the NSCA website, they are peer, if you want a more peer-reviewed version of the article, uh, the title that I co-authored with Andrew Bogotsky is Are the Seated Leg Extension, Leg Curl, and Adduction Machine Exercises Non-Functional or Risky? That's the title to reference people to. So, um, yeah, I think that's what you're – to answer your question, is that a good self-study? I, I mean – that's all we can do to self-study, uh, you know, is try things out. Um, uh, if something hurts, then maybe you minimize the range of motion. But again, it doesn't necessarily mean the exercise is bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously, if you're worried about something or you think something ha- could be a, a possible injury or medical issue, then you obviously want to seek the right medical attention to get that advice from. Uh, that being said, I do warn people that – um, even though I don't expect doctors and physios to be experts in exercise, I, that they're, they have other things to be experts in. Um, they are human like us and they are guilty of falling for things that sound good. So again, if they've heard enough physical therapists overall say, oh, this exercise is bad, they're just going to throw that out, mm-hmm. you know, to you. So again, you know, you know, you want to actually, that's why people get second opinions. So you always want to be a little leery of just hearing some of these, again, overall blanket, this exercise is bad, blah, blah, blah type thing. Um, you did mention, we did talk about quads though in the Smith machine. And now we're talking about leg extension. Um, you know, we did show some research in our article, um, on the T nation article as well. I'm going to go down to it now from the rehabilitation world. Um, so <clears throat> there's a multi- – I'm just going to read it to you. Multitude of studies showing that better strength gains in the quads even among post-ACL reconstruction patient, patients. Keep in mind people are say that they're worried about ACL issues with leg extensions. When combining open kinetic chain exercises like leg extensions along with closed kinetic chain exercises like squats and lunges over using only closed kinetic chain. So um, better strength gains when you add in things like all oh, those pesky non-functional right exercises like leg extensions so um and there's some other research that shows single joint exercises do help i told you about the hamstring hamstring study so again it's i I always say this it's not as much or only what experts say it's what the research and says and principles dictate what experts say comes at a less I would say uh, holds less weight. So don't just go with that. Mm -hmm. No, fantastically said. I think it's important for people to always remember remember that because it's very easy just to go with. And I like how you always say, don't just trust me about it. Kind of go and look into it yourself because that's important too. Yeah, I love when people say like, oh, you're – you're skeptical, so why should I believe you? I go, you should. I don't want you to. In fact, I'm promoting that you don't. You know, I don't want you meet. You, I don't want you to be have me do your thinking for you because yep. I I I don't want to be an authority. You know, I just want to be an information resource that someone just goes, here's some things I do. Here's my rationale for it. Go check it out. You know, go check it out yourself. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. And I guess we can close uh, on the final exercise, which is behind the neck pull downs. Yeah, so this is the one that I think got the most attention Mm -hmm. out of it because – and I would say those – out of all the arguments, you know, against the kind of the blanket statements, I I would probably say I'm more comfortable 
with it in this regard because what the research shows is that as long as you have sufficient external shoulder range of motion, then you can get away with doing behind the neck pull downs and behind the neck presses actually without any sort of worry about hurting your shoulders because, you know, but it also showed that, you know, a lot of men do not have that range of motion. Men tend to be less, more flexible um, than women if, if they don't necessarily keep up with it or do specific mobility or flexibility type exercises. So, you know, um, so this one is a more individualistic approach, whereas if, if I've written three books already. I'm not here to promote the books. I, I'm gonna, I say that to use a point. I don't put behind-the-neck presses or pull-downs in the books because I know I'm reading a general audience, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of them are probably less capable of doing this, and they'll see it, and they'll think, oh, it's okay. Or it's too nuanced where I'll just get taken a task on, and everybody will think I don't know what I'm talking about right? because there's too much reaction the other way. So there's other reasons why I might not put certain exercises, not just because I just think they're globally bad. So um, that being said, you can't, on the flip side of it, us trainers, we normally, if you saw me doing behind the neck pull downs myself or with a client, you would think that's a sign that I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Where has Nick been? We've known that's a bad exercise since like the 70s before, you know, I was born in 79. Where has Nick been? That's the problem there because what you don't know is I've evaluated that person's external shoulder rotation. And they can actually do it quite well. So it doesn't mean it's bad for them. Now, the next very reasonable question that I got you know, from this discussion is, okay, it may not be unsafe for people who have the range of motion. Well, any exercise is unsafe. If it pushes you past the range of motion, you can move into and control. The question is then, why would you still do it, mm-hmm. right? Well, another question is why do you have to eliminate it is the second question because you're still saying, well, it puts you higher at a closer risk of injury. And I, I kind of see that because maybe you're closer to an end range. I get that. So the my initial answer is that some people feel it more. <laughs> some of you will prefer it. And, I, and you, if they prefer it and they're capable of doing it, they go, look, because everybody is slightly different. Now, we do have some research – <clears throat> I'm going to try to find it here because, again, I don't want to misrepresent it because if I do misspeak or say anything wrong, I know I'll be taken to task with quite – with a lot of people with will do it with a lot of glee. Um, so let me make sure that I don't misrepresent that. So here you go. Reading from the T Nation article. Research comparing the muscle activity in behind the neck, front of the neck, and V-bar, which is the close grip pulldowns, found no differences in lat muscle activity in the different variations. Okay, it's all the same for lats, but it did show higher activity in the posterior delt and biceps brachii during the behind the neck pulldown. So what if somebody is trying to increase their work volume on those two areas for more development? Right, so there is a reason, and there is slightly different muscle activity there. Right, so you're saying, oh, well, that's not the best way to do that. I would do reared out flies and I would do bicep curls. Okay, well, why not add some additional bang for your buck while you're also hitting your lats? To me, that's actually very time efficient. Mm -hmm. Again, with the prerequisite that you have the shoulder external rotation to do it. So we have some very individual reasons why. And if I can just circle back to the interview that we all did with uh, Mike and myself, one of the points we were talking about about is that if you're doing partial range squats because uh, you've got more ego than brains, 
that's a problem, which is what most people are doing. But there is research for using partial range squats, which I talked about in that. So you can't just look at somebody and see what they're doing and go, because I see partial range squats or because I see behind the neck pull downs, therefore it means that person does not know what they're talking about. In fact, they may know a heck of a lot more than you do because a lot of people are unaware of some of the research that they may be aware of and they may do, be doing it for a very strategic reason. Mm-hmm. No, brilliant. You put, I think, uh, like a lot of exercises, especially when there's different variants that not many people have seen, oftentimes it's just a case that we're all individual, we're all different, and we may well feel something a little bit better than another exercise. So I think that was very well put. Um, out of interest, I think I have two um, kind of exercises I see getting accused. And I would probably say potentially both of them are wrongly accused. Well, I think a lot of exercises probably get wrongly accused, but I'd like to hear your opinion, Nick. And one of them's upright rows. So a lot of people kind of talk about them being bad for the shoulders, impingement, things like this. I don't know if you've got much of an opinion on that. Yeah, so I addressed this in um, my book, Your Workout Perfected. Um, with, I actually have two versions of upright rows in the book. I have what I call dumbbell wide grip upright rows where you know, you're know you at the top, your elbows are no higher than your shoulders and your elbows are bent at 90 degrees. So the dumbbells are diverging away from one another. Um, and I've seen two research studies. I if I remember correctly, Brad Schoenfeld was responsible for one of them that, that shows that there's likely less impingement stress on the shoulder um, or unwanted you know, stress going on there. Again, I don't want to misrepresent the research. I don't have it right in front of me. And when you look at as much research as I'm doing, you know, it's hard to remember every little little word or whatnot. But um, so I have that in the, in the book. Um, so I prefer if you're training with me based on that research, two studies as far as I know to date, there could be one other one that you know has come out since that I don't know about. I would prefer to go wide grip based on those research studies. Um, I don't want to put words in Andrew Bogotsky's mouth, but I do remember seeing a thread with him kind of maybe disagreeing that maybe any sort of upright row is, pro- is, is problematic. Um, could mean he could be arguing for a specific type of show, you know, may not be as problematic for uh, certain populations or the others. Again, you would have to talk to him about that. That would be a good question for, for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying he made that claim. I'm saying I think I remember seeing that. Um, so I like to do a, what I call a low cable um, row. So if the cable's down about a 45 degree angle, you do a, a row, like an upright row like this. So it's basically a hybrid between a free weight upright row and a wide grip elbow row. So the cable's at 45 degrees. Um, I'm going to speak in total bro language right now, but I personally feel that in my upper traps, like nothing else, mm-hmm. most people that are interested in, in upper trap development that I've provided that exercise for say they absolutely love it. I have not found good. I don't have any research to back this up. So all I can give you is bro talk at this point, um, is, uh, I have not found good success using it with different population, uh, different strength levels, um, for heavier weight. It just seems to throw off the, right. the tension. So we normally tend to do sets of like 12 all the way up to, to 30. But the, the ideas like this in your forearm, what I say is keep your form in line with the force vector, which is the cool. cable. So it doesn't, doesn't drop back like that one. <clears throat> Excellent. Yeah. I think from my experience, it's been very similar in that the wider grip seems to be more comfortable for a lot of people. And you get those rare few people who can go very close and very high and just have no impingement or any problems there. And I think like a lot of these exercises, like the, the behind the neck pull downs, it's a case of trying it, 
if it's causing you a pain, do not do that um, and find something else that can kind of utilize, use that same musculature that you're trying to develop. So, um, and then the other one I had um, is sissy squats. So I think this is similar to knee extensions in that people think they're bad for the knees and they put a lot of strain there. I don't know if this is an exercise you've ever incorporated within your routines or you're a favor of or not. Well, um, yeah, which version are you trying? Because I've seen the version where people kind of stay on their on their balls of their feet and kind of do like a Pee Wee Herman move, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean, with their torso back. And the other one is, um, I'm sure there's some people listening to this that are way younger than us that don't know who the heck Pee Wee Herman is. But um, And then uh, the other one is where they're in the machine, where you have your, you know, the back of your calves braced. Yeah. And then you squat more like, almost like a Smith machine type squat, except mm-hmm. you don't have the bar. Which one are you referring to? Because both I've heard called sissy squats. I would probably refer to the first one um, as kind of the one I'm thinking of. Okay. So, <clears throat> I, I, again, I would say that if, if I feel like someone already has pretty strong quads, because it's really hard to scale that exercise back unless you have like attached some sort of like uh, band, you know, resistance that helps them further they go down. But because it creates such a long moment arm at the knee joint and there's a lot of eccentric load through the quads, um, I, I would have to be confident that people can tolerate that. And because you're already kind of stuck with using whatever your body weight is there, um, I would make sure that I feel that they were ready to deal with that sort of load. But keep in mind, that's what strength training is. It builds up loading tolerance to deal with force. And the reason why some certain exercises tend to be more um, commonly injur- injurious to people, for example, like the old ab wheel rollout, mm-hmm. it's because people normally went out too far because the further they go, the more tension they has to have to create and then they went beyond their strength level. There was nothing really stopping them. So, of course, people just say, oh, I hurt my back doing that, right? So, again, it was the idea of, the, well, you just went too heavy. But because there was no weights for them to change, to select, they didn't know they were going too heavy because it wasn't as obvious, right? Um, same thing I would say with, with sissy squats. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are not used to doing such um, quad-specific work and also working in such a uh, eccentric position that they're not very strong there. And then they move into a pretty dang advanced exercise. Mm-hmm. So see why people go oh man that's a knee killer but um i would say if you're already if you're already found ways to progress into that or you feel like you're a a more advanced exerciser i would have no problem with with doing it cool no brilliantly put um and i just have two more questions if we can cover them off um before we go and i just wondered if there was any kind of exercises you particularly feel are like you particularly like for hypertrophy that maybe are underrated by some people that you just favor Um, and then we can ask the second question but it will be the opposite of that where lots of people like them but you don't think they're maybe overhyped for hypertrophy well i mean i would just say i I would say in the in the current uh kind of trend that we're in right now is still very powerlifting driven you know um and i think it's a reaction to you know the the barbell obsession is is um a reaction to when i came up right which was which was the opposite where nobody was lifting anything mm-hmm. weight it was all colored equipment and wobbly stuff uh and we're starting to get out of that that obsession now but because of that you know a lot of it comes from powerlifting and we tend to we'll do avoid machines and a lot of people do want to do more bodybuilding type hypertrophic type work but um 
they tend to avoid things like leg extensions, um, quad specific work, even, but they want to develop quads and they just think that doing squats and lunges and even Smith machine, um, stuff is the way to do it. But there is some research that, um, I think it was your vastus medialis, vastus lateralis, but one aspect of your quad is, is gets more activation than, um, when you do leg extensions. Now, uh, I do know that some research nerds will then push back and they'll say, well, we can't necessarily draw more hypertrophy from EMG. I get that. I would actually say, I, I would question how can you hypertrophy a muscle without activating it. So I do think there is some relevance there. Cool. Um, but I do think the research and you're, the way you're kind of acknowledging it, I think you probably sound you're familiar with it. But um, yeah. is there some research that shows that people that added the leg extension did get more hypertrophy? Or I actually think there is research that shows that people who mixed up exercises where they did um, machines with squats and when it had more overall quad development than people who just did the same exercises. Is that right? I think there is a research study on that. Am I can't I remember this specific research, but the reason I'm kind of agreeing is that I know the leg extension, basically, like you're saying, it loads a particular area of the quad that kind of leg presses, Smith machine, squats, squat varieties don't. So it can kind of, similar to like a leg curl um, to a hip hinge, kind of you're missing out on that a little bit if you don't include them now and then. Yeah, I want to say, um, I I'm could have sworn I, t- I had that research right now. I'm just kind of – you might be hearing me pecking on the keys. Um, I think I may have referenced that research in an article recently here. Um, I'm looking for it right now, so just give me a second. It's the problem when you write as many articles as I do. Let's see. I mean it's one thing when I know I've seen research. Another thing to know that if I put it in, you know, which articles and – Let's see here. Okay, uh, this is from my article. I'll give you the title in a second. Research shows leg extension creates much higher levels of activation in the rectus femoris. So I was wrong with the, the quad muscle I was bringing up. It's the rectus femoris. Compared to the squat, I have a reference there, which is likely why other research shows rectus femoris seems to grow more from single joint machine-based knee extension training relative to the three other quadriceps that's another research. So there is research, not only that it shows that it has more activation um, doing leg extensions than re- in rectus femoris, but there is research that shows that it does actually encourage more growth mm-hmm. when you incorporate that. That article is titled, another T-Nation article. I enjoy writing for T-Nation, so I continue to write for them. That article is titled, it's actually fairly recent, um, The Missing Lower Body Exercises for Strength. It, it's... Uh-huh. Uh, that's kind of a clickbaity sounding title. Um, the the subtitle is "Isolation Moves Your Program Needs." It's really more of a checklist of how I go about isolation exercises for lower body. And that's really interesting because, well, hopefully we'll be able to get you back on at some point and go through a lot of those exercises um, that maybe yeah, like the powerlifts don't hit, and you just should be including them if your goal is maximal hypertrophy. So that'd be really interesting. You don't want to know about my calf and forearm workout? It's <laughs> I think <laughs> I'd be interested in the calves for sure. Right now, forearms are the least of my worries, but big calves, I could definitely take those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I, yeah, I definitely don't have those uh, big calf genetics. <laughs> so yeah, apart from – so that's one of the exercises where – or kind of uh, – 
an idea of exercises that you think are underrated and then so the overrated were the power lifts is there any specific reasons do you think it's just the fact that people then forget about the other movements that they could be appreciating from as well or is there anything about the power lifts you're particularly think yeah. are maybe not superior okay i mean yeah well i would just say barbell exercises in general are, are okay. overrated and i mean i mean the traditional barbell exercises not like the angled barbell landmine stuff now don't get me wrong i know how people are there when they when they say, oh, he's over, you know, he's, he's challenging the years of, you know, Olympic lifters and athletes have been, you know, no, I'm not saying any of these exercises are bad or that you shouldn't use them. When I say is overrated is means they become like the solution to everything yeah. and the default programming, you know, thing. Oh, just do that. Right. That's where it be, anything becomes overrated. Bananas become overrated. If you say you'll get all your vitamins from bananas, mm-hmm. right, then they're overrated. So here's, here's what I mean. I'm actually going to come at it from a slightly different perspective first. Let's look at it as a, uh, a gym owner, as a gym studio, private gym owner, not a big box gym owner. But a lot of people listening to this are, are very thoughtful trainers and I'm sure own their own facilities. And, you know, space and equipment are all big deal to you. Maximizing your space and uh, making the most out of your equipment. Well, a barbell... I'm going to speak in metric terms because I'm a dumb American, is seven feet in length. That's a traditional barbell length. Now, if if this is the end of the barbell here, my other client is certainly not going to stand right here and do another exercise, right? They're going to have to stand at least another three feet outside of that to make sure that we feel like we have enough space. So you can add another three feet and another three feet on each side that so when you're limited on space you've got 13 feet one piece of equipment has taken up and if you're doing a small group or a large group that is the least practical piece of equipment for group based training facilities all right now the question is well what can i do with barbells that i can't do with other things well i would say you know really create a lot of overload while both joints are going the ground i create a lot of joint a lot of overload on a single leg because it only takes half the load. A 200-pound squat, if I just, that's, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be 100 pounds on each leg. So all I have to do is stand on one leg and hold 100 pounds, and, I, and I've got that, right? So that's one thing to one thing to consider. But now if people are really into going closer to their, you know, 5RM, 4RM, 3RM, which most trainers will tell you, Unless you're a powerlifting-oriented gym, most clients that you work with, and even most weekend warriors and athletes, are not interested in going below a 6RM. Mm-hmm. Right? It sounds good in theory, but unless you're trying to cram it down their throat, and if you are, they're probably out the door sooner than you think. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Now, that's trainer-to-trainer type, type talk. Now, if we go aside from that and talk about more people who are interested in lifting, then I would say that – Certainly, the barbell exercises are are fine, but you would then have to look at loading points in, in range of motion. Where the bench press, you know, loads you maximally when your elbows are par- or your humerus is parallel to the floor and doesn't really create a lot of load on your pecs when your arms are at the top. So that's where pec flies would come in. So just doing a horizontal press is not going to be complete development. Uh, for full range strength, but this goes back to the conversation I had with Mike Israetel, of of training um, shoulder horizontal adduction, which is the movement that you're going through when you're doing a bench press. So that's another way I would say they're overrated, is people think, well, as soon as you do this, 
that kind of has it covered. No, it's a starting point, yeah. right? It, it may it may be it may be one of the dishes that you serve. It may be the protein portion, but it's not the it's not the fibrous carb and it's not the essential fats and other things there. Like people would talk about putting together a meal. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, fantastically put. I think um, that makes complete sense, and I absolutely agree that they are a, a component to a, a, a program. Um, so, yeah, fantastic. So that's everything I wanted to cover today. Thank you very much for coming on, Nick. <clears throat> I don't know if we really referred people to where they could reach out to you last time. I, we had kind of links below, but I specifically want to ask and make sure if people want to reach out to you, Nick, where is the best place to find you? Um, my website, there's, there's actually three ways. All these websites will take you to the same spot, just whichever one you remember. Um, nicktumanello.com. If you don't know how to spell my long Italian name, performance, you, that's the letter U.net. And then, um, most recently I came out with these t-shirts that are on the back, they say PE teacher for adults, um, which have been selling really well with, with trainers and it has my gym logo. I mean, my company logo on the front. And then, um, so I actually went and bought peteacherforadults.com. Oh, nice. <laughs> it takes you to my website. So um, you can also, if you memorize that easier, you can go to that one. Fantastic. I'll make sure they're all linked below. And also the articles that we talked about during this podcast, I'll try and make sure they're all linked below as well so people can check those out. And just want to say again, thank you very much for coming on, Nick. Um, I'm sure people are going to really enjoy this and we may have to drag you on again. Well, I appreciate it, man. I'm, and if just one quick thing, you know, what I talked about in the beginning about what I'm for, what we're not for. This is another one of the, the shirts we have, and I have this on the shirt. It's kind of the ethos, and I'll read it to you from top to bottom. It says, client-centered, practically driven, principle-based, scientifically founded. And I, that's really the, the heart of everything that, I, that, we're, that, we're, that we're talking about here. It comes down to those four things. Fantastic. Yeah, really nice. <laughs> I really think um, that's a great sentiment. And I think – to be honest, that's kind of evidence-based training in a nutshell there. I appreciate that, brother. Awesome, guys. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon.